How do you define a bad job? Are you in one? When is enough enough? Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm your host, Lori Rudiman. On today's episode, I talked to Katrina Kibben. Katrina is the founder of Three Ears Media. Three Ears Media creates recruitment marketing and editorial strategies that help companies find quality candidates at a lower cost. But I don't really care about that. Katrina just quit her job and she launched Three Ears Media. This is the third time she started to try a business. And so she's in the perfect position to talk about risk, finance, and even fear of failure. So if you have imposter syndrome or you're scared of taking the next step, Katrina is your woman. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and I'll see you at the end to wrap things up. Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is breaking things down so you can put them back together and make work something you can enjoy. Let's fix work together. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman, and this is Let's Fix Work. I'm here today with my dear friend and really just soul sister, Katrina Kibben. Katrina, how are you doing? I'm so well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you here because you, for a hot minute, were like sort of unemployed, and I thought maybe we can quickly talk about how you're no longer unemployed. You just started a company. I did. I did. So I just started a company called Three Ears Media. Um, What we do is a bit of a moving target, which I think is an entrepreneurial lifestyle of sorts, (laughs) one that I know you understand. Yeah, yeah. But you have a business Uh, plan, right? right? Yeah, you're like on top of it. So what what are you doing right now? Like, well, wait, let me ask you a better question. How do you fix work? I love that question. Uh, So I help people find the right job, not just any job, but I do it in a different way by teaching companies what that means. Uh, And I really focus on high volume, low retention roles that are traditionally the definition of work suck. Uh, Wait, wait, tell me more. What's a high volume job that you're currently helping companies fill? Right. So for, an, for example, I'm working with a local nonprofit who does after school care uh, that is focused on hiring people who are available between six and eight and two and six. It's a split shift job working with kids. Yeah, that definitely for me is my version of hell. But for some people, that's perfect. If they're looking for a flexible work environment or they love children or, you know, they're passionate about daycare. But what's hard about filling that job? I have all kinds of assumptions, but I want to hear it from you. So it's a tough job because people come into it with a lot of expectations about what working with kids is like. Um, But taking a step back from the HR perspective, it's really challenging because they're looking for people who want to work a split shift. They have to be excellent communicators and they have to convince them to have all of those qualities and bring them to a nonprofit financial situation. Oh, so this job does not pay a hundred grand a year. Nailed it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, isn't that what happens with our workforce? We need all of these important jobs. We need individuals to not only show up, but to provide emotional labor 
and we don't pay them for it, right? I mean, we expect the world and we can only offer, what, nine bucks an hour, 12 bucks an hour, and that, not just that job, but all kinds of jobs in our economy. So you're hiring for childcare. What other jobs fill that bill? Sales roles, especially entry-level sales, call centers, retail, hospitality, uh, roles where you're hiring more than a hundred of these people every year and your retention is low, is pretty, it's causing issues. Let's call, let's say that. Yeah. So high attrition rates, right? People quit quite mm-hmm. frequently. All right. So how do you specifically fix work in that area? You're working with companies. What do you do? So I help them look at all of these pieces that you and I just talked about, the things that make that role challenging, but I look at all that information in the context of the psychology of their most successful people. So these these jobs are tough, but there are people who are successful at them. There are people who would love this type of job and this work for a million different reasons. And so I do a psychological profile of the top five people in that job, two managers and three people doing the job right now. And I take all of that information and I build a recruitment marketing plan that builds pipeline based on those, your best people, so that we can start to mirror those behaviors into your interview process, your selection process, and of course, obviously the most important one, building a pipeline so that you're not doing what I like to call pants on fire recruiting. Yeah, I love that. But I think so many companies start with the recruiting process when they really should start with the employee experience because many of these jobs, even when there are successful people doing it, truly suck. So what kind of conversations are you having when you've got people who are successfully doing the job, but the job is just horrible? Have you, have you encountered that yet? The jobs have not been horrible yet. <laughs> of course, uh, you wouldn't say that about your clients. Yeah. <laughs> And you, I'm two months in, so oh, yeah. I'm expecting that this could scale to be really challenging and really tough roles, you know, like a factory worker in Kentucky, in rural Kentucky, where I need 10% of the local, you know, population to apply to that job to build any pipeline. Yeah. I expect those kinds of challenges in the future. Right now, I'm definitely dealing with challenging work. Yeah. Uh, that after school role, for example, really challenging because there's no flexibility on pay. There's no flexibility on schedule. Yeah. So at this point, I think when, when the challenging work comes up, it's about framing the challenges into the interview to see if that person can meet the expectations. Yeah. So for that example, that after school role, the after school role is challenging because of communication. You have to be able to adapt your communication style in a matter of seconds from talking to a school therapist who you see every day to a parent you just met to a child that you're trying to discipline. You have to do that in the scene in a matter of 10 minutes. Oh my God. That sounds like parenting, uh, except they're not your children, right? So that's, (laughs) and also you can't beat them. You can't beat them. Right. right. That's definitely <laughs> not, not a lot to hit. Yeah. Not, <laughs> not a good thing to have. All right. So you're fixing work by really helping to fill jobs that are important to the economy that aren't necessarily the glamorous IT jobs or working for Facebook where you get free lunches. You know, you have had a 
few jobs in the past couple of years. You know, I joked about your recent uh, unemployment and then starting a new company, and I'm so very proud of you. <laughs> but can you tell us Thank about you. your personal moments when work has let you down? This question made me think really hard. And I have to give you credit for that because I think, you know, so many times you get asked these same old, same old questions. And this one tapped into my brain and it stuck. And so this morning I was at the gym and I thought of the answer. And when it all boiled down, I, in corporate roles, very often I found myself feeling very needed, but not valued. Oh, tell me more. And so what I mean by that. Yeah. So what I mean by that is that I, so I have a very unique skill set. I'm a technical copywriter who can code. And so that has lent me into a very wide range of roles. Uh, my last three job titles, for example, director of marketing, managing editor, uh, technical copywriter. So that's not a linear path by any means, but no matter the size of the company, no matter the structure of my team, I found myself very needed. I had a wide skill set. I could apply myself to a lot of different roles. But when it came down to the tangible ways that I wanted to feel valued, salary, promotions, leadership opportunities, I continued to feel that I was falling short yeah. on what I wanted and deserved. You know, there's, um, there are two authors that come to mind. The first is George Anders, and the second is Alexandra Levitt. And both of them have written about the importance of having degrees in humanities. Because if you have like a liberal arts degree or a degree in English and you can write and you have critical thinking skills, you can float in and out of a lot of jobs and you can almost outsmart career trends and figure out what's next. But the problem with that is that many of us get stuck in these one-off jobs and we've outsmarted the curve. We end up as a marketing director, but there's really nowhere else for us to go. And it sounds like maybe you felt that way. Is that, is that accurate? I think so. I had this, you know, like I said, that unique combination of elements like you just described and inevitably, I felt like I was kind of falling short using only one piece of all of it. So starting my own company was the best way to take all of those skills and throw that into the universe and see what would happen. Yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, one of the dirty secrets that I learned in human resources is that individuals never really grow within their own companies. They only ever grow by going from job to job to job. And it's only recently that we've accepted that as part of the narrative of people's resumes. We used to think these job hoppers, these young millennials, they don't know what they're doing. And Katrina, you're living the dream. I mean, you're actually living the right career plan. You're going to a company, you're learning things, you're growing, and then eventually you've started your own organization to do good work in the world. So it sounds like you're fixing work for other people, but you're kind of fixing it for yourself. Absolutely. You know, the fix for me was this moment where I realized that my feeling had as much validity and importance when it came to work as my finances did. That there had to be a tipping point in my life where my feelings mattered as much as financial security. Yeah, that's a really brave thing to say. And it also is a very scary thing because many people never get to that point. They never feel as if they have the freedom or security to walk away from that paycheck. So 
you felt like your feelings were valid. What did you do to prepare for that moment when you said, I don't need a paycheck anymore? So I have to provide just a little bit of context so people understand that I'm not one of those fluffy people who's like, I'm just going to quit my job. Wait, I'm totally like that. So don't, don't knock that <laughs> because I'm a free spirit that way. <laughs> I am not a free spirit. Uh, my parents are both military accountants. They, so the rigidity that you assume comes with that was my entire life. Financial planning. I had a spreadsheet when I was 16 oh to manage God. my finances. Right. Well, that's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> or, or I, crazy. I'm not sure. <laughs> I have, you just nailed it. I always yeah. feel like it's, it's a little crazy, but at the same time, it, it gave me the structure to understand the value of money. And that is exactly why I stayed in corporate America for so long. Because I always thought to myself, oh, well, guaranteed is better than risk. Uh, I actually started a company three jobs ago. And for three months, I ran my company. And at the end of three months, I was petrified. I was really scared. And so I shut it down. I sent in my, you know this or however you dissolve the LLC, right? I did all that paperwork, sent it in and I quit. And I went wow. back to corporate America. So wait, wait, in wait, preparation wait, 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 wait. Did you yeah. quit because you were afraid or because you were actively failing or a mix of both? I was afraid. All right. I had clients. I had work. I had very well paying work, but someone came in and said, well, I can guarantee this. And I was balancing guarantee and risk. And at the time, I didn't know what to do with that. Yeah, I hear you. All right. I didn't mean to interrupt. So, uh, no, no, no. Yeah. So you um, gave up your, your company, you dissolved your company three companies ago, and only now you've picked that back up. Why now? What's, what's different now? A few things. Um, the first is my support structure is very different now. Um, my, so when my last company started, I was, little did I know I was about a year away from a divorce. Um, I was taking care of a family member who had cancer and was dying. I had just moved to a new state. So a million variables that did not prepare me to be in a good place to start that company then. So this time around, I started with my support structure. I went to people not just family and, you know, my fiance, but also people like Sarah Brennan, who's a mutual friend of ours, who I said, by, I, by the way, who will always be Sarah White. Just let's get that on the Sarah, table. Always Sarah White to us. And we love her. We're going <laughs> to give you her information in the show notes. She's a future guest. But anyway, go ahead. Um, and I went to her and I said, ah, and her, as well as a few other female entrepreneurs who I really admire and respect and said, I want to start a company. And I don't know how. And so what she told me to do, she was kind of the leader of that little pack of people I went out to. And what she told me to do was incredible advice. Instead of going out and getting clients, I went out and did the infrastructure work. I set up my accounting. I set up my website. I set up social media. I did all of the infrastructure elements of creating a business that so many of us rush past to do work. And I, 
just in doing that, it gave me a different level of confidence on day one when I said, I'm starting a company because I knew I could do work that day. I could tell people what I did without telling them verbally. And I was official. I felt official. And that's different than I started a company. (laughs) Yeah. So many of us hang a shingle and don't really realize what a shingle means. But I have to tell you, I'm real good at a marketing plan and I'm really good at website stuff. But when it comes to what do I actually want to do? I'm like, eh, I don't know. I I want to blog. I want to write. I want to (laughs) podcast her. So for me, um, because I've worked in the world of marketing for so long, that stuff is, is good advice because you're right. You have to project a brand. But for me, there's always been this disconnect between the website is up and running and what's my actual business plan. So for this podcast and for my other venture, HR Books, it was the first time in my life that I've ever written a business plan. And I'm 43 years old, right? I've been an entrepreneur for 14 years. So um, I'm in a different journey than you are because I'm sure based on your military accounting background, you have some sort of business plan, right? Absolutely. I have a six month plan, a 12 month plan, (laughs) uh, micro details, what I'm doing this week to get towards the six month plan, what I'm doing this week to get towards this month. I have a sticky, these are the goals that I have to accomplish this week to take a a baby step towards my goals. I'm very linear in that way, which again, really surprises people when they're like, wait, you're a copywriter. You tell stories, but you're also a project manager. Well, it's true. yeah, multi-varied skills. I love it. That's perfect. So, you know, there are people out there who are really struggling in their current roles and may feel connected to you and your story. And so I wonder, as we wrap up this segment, what actionable advice do you have for people who are currently struggling in their roles? I get that question a lot, especially at conferences for some reason. It's like I attract the the disengaged. <laughs> oh my God. Well, everybody's drinking too. So they're, dis, uh, they're disinhibited <laughs> and they're just going to ask the tough questions. It's the tequila talking. No, but <laughs> so I think if you're really unhappy at work, you have two choices. If you want to stay or you want to go. And I have two different pieces of advice based on which one you want. Even if you're unhappy and you want to stay, that's valid. That is a valid choice. And that's the first thing I want you to know. It is valid to be unhappy at times and still want to stay in an organization. However, I would never, I would never suggest that someone stay at an organization if they can't be honest when they're unhappy. That's good. That's really good. It's uncomfortable honesty, right? It's the, it's the honesty to be transparent about what hurts, what you need to see change. That's what makes great relationships work. And that's what makes work work as well. If you can't do that, if that's not feasible, you have to leave. And if you want to, if when you're ready to leave, this is my standard advice, no matter who you are, I want you to call five people who have been advocates for you in your life. Mentors, managers, coworkers, people who just, not friends, but people who are advocates for you, who know how great you are, know how great your work is. I want you to call each of them. I want you to make time to call each of them. If you call one a week, two a week, depends how aggressive you're feeling, right? And I want you to do this before you ever update your resume, before you go on a job board, before you do anything. And I want you to call those people and just catch up, see how they're doing, ask them how their life is. And then I want you to tell them what's happening. 
What's making you really unhappy? And I want you to figure out how to verbalize that because that's important. These conversations are not just networking. That's the obvious benefit. But they're therapy. They're your opportunity to have that person contextualize your problem and help you find a solution. Things you can't do all by yourself. And after those five calls, you, you'll know what to do next. Amazing. Amazing. What a great use of your personal network, of your friends, of the relationships that you've just invested in over the years. You've spent time with these people. They know you the best. Why not be honest with them? Katrina, that's really good advice. Awesome. Yeah. So when we come back after the break, we're going to talk to Katrina about her work and how it applies to others and how fixing work is really the challenge of the 21st century. We'll be right back on the Let's Fix Work podcast. Hey, are you ready to podcast like a pro? Then you need a secret weapon, someone who can make it easy, where all you have to do is show up and be the host. At One Stone Creative, that's what we do. Everything. Yeah, everything. Imagine, every time you sit down to record, you know what your topic is. You want a script? We can do that too. Then you record it, drop it in a folder, and that's it. Our team will take it from there. Production, show notes, uploads, blog posts, social media assets, swipe copy, like I said, everything. Book a call with the podcast strategist today. Just go to onestonecreative.net slash podcast. That's onestonecreative.net slash podcast, and we'll take it from there. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Lori Rudiman and the Let's Fix Work podcast, and I'm here today with my dear friend, Katrina Kibben. Katrina, how are you feeling? I feel great. I'm here with you. I know. It's just so easy and natural, isn't it? We are friends in real life, so it should be. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. Well, good. Well, listen, I was thinking back to when I first met you, and um, were you at Monster then? Were you at Monster.com? What were you doing there? I was. <laughs> My job title officially was Social Media Ninja, a phrase <laughs> in which I have tried to ban. Oh my God, that's horrible. Oh. Yeah. Well, and where that were was you? my legitimate title. Where were you living then? Were you in Boston? I was. I was living in Maynard, Massachusetts, which is not Boston. No. Uh, it is a tiny place about an hour outside of the city proper. Um, <laughs> you know what's funny is I actually moved there on a whim. I went online. I was laid off during the dot-com bubble. I worked at a company called Visual CV that's actually now coming back on the market, different owners. And uh, they ran out of money and sent all of us home one day. And I got online. I was young then. I still had choices and I could just pick up all my things and move. I was living in DC and I went on monster.com ironically and I typed in social media jobs. And I said, I will move wherever there are the most jobs in the country. And Boston won. And so I packed up all of my stuff. I lived in a cabin in Maine while I had no job. And I would commute down to Boston for interviews and inevitably ended up working in a social media job at monster.com. Unbelievable. And so that was like a decade ago and you are no longer in Massachusetts. I think you're probably in a place that you would consider home now, right? Where are you based? I am. I am in Longmont, Colorado, which is right near, right next to Boulder, Colorado. Beautiful. Do you think being in a place that you consider home is making all the difference in your work-life balance and the quality of life? I think it has an enormous impact. I, like I mentioned earlier, I'm an army brat. And so we moved every year between the time I started kindergarten and the time I graduated high school. 
I have never planted a bulb and seen it bloom one year later in my home. And I have officially lived in this house for one year and my daffodils just bloomed. So I think the feeling of home is absolutely a, a framework of the joy that I'm feeling right now around work. Oh, that's amazing. I love spring flowers. I'm glad you get to experience that. That's fabulous. Well, you know, we're talking about joy in our lives right now. And for so many people, you know, I hate to be a Debbie Downer, especially people in the service or hospitality industry, work is tough. And so do you have any insight on how work is tough in those specific sectors and what if you're managing people? How do you get people to stay motivated? Or how do you stay motivated yourself when you keep hearing things about automation, even in the fast food industry and the retail apocalypse? What, what do you think about all that? So I think on the work side, and this is probably an area you will agree with me on, is that the reason these jobs particularly suck is the volume of humans that you have to encounter in one day. Uh, because the more humans you have to encounter, the ratio of potential assholes you will encounter increases steadily. And I don't know exactly what those numbers are, but it's pretty low. You see one person, it's a 100% chance they're an asshole, in my opinion. You know? <laughs> I don't know if that math is exactly. right. Exactly. feels right. Yeah. Oh my God. You know, so, for a second I hesitated to say asshole and I was like, oh, it's us. We oh, we're rated that. E. Rated E for everybody. That's right. <laughs> well, listen, you know, I think um, about these awful jobs. And so uh, you're right. I think the human to human contact can be both a blessing and a curse. Do good jobs even exist in the retail and hospitality sector? For the right people? Absolutely. If that's why my business is structured around these high volume, low retention roles, because I, I genuinely believe that if companies can take a step back to understand a psychological profile, use that to create their marketing recommendations and deploy candidate pipelines that live in those areas where their best people already are, that they can attract people who enjoy this work, who are driven by the outcomes of this work. Because I think that's the second part of why these jobs are so hard. As humans, we want to grow. We want people to be proud of us. And most importantly, we want to be proud of ourselves. And the sheer infrastructure of these jobs leaves very little room for that. God, that's such an interesting insight. And I think there are assumptions about that kind of work that you can't be proud of that work. But there's nothing more important than feeding America. There's nothing more important than taking care of America's children or producing products that we need for hygiene. You know, I, one of my earliest jobs was in a shampoo factory and a body wash. And I just think like, we need that kind of stuff in America. Those are really important jobs. Like, I don't want to work with people who smell. I want to work with clean people. And that <laughs> for me, working at Alberto Culver, I could see the direct connection between what we do and the quality of life in our users. And I think that's lost on snobby, upper middle class professional workers who think it's the be all end all to be a lawyer or to have your MBA. But these jobs are noble that you're trying to fill, Katrina. And these kids have grown up in a media obsessed environment. Think about who they idolize, Zuckerberg, people who didn't even go to, so let's take a step back and I'm going to remove the name Zuckerberg did not go to college, did not finish college, right? Yeah. Started a company at 
you know, 16 or 17, right? And now he's a billionaire. That's who I, they idolize. But little do they realize that's the 0.01%. Yeah. They also idolize, you, now I'm sounding like an old woman, but they idolize YouTube stars and uh, Fortnite gamers and people who, well, back a couple years ago, who did Minecraft for a living and, and NBA players, right? And celebrities. And not that I didn't idolize celebrities when I was younger, but I didn't see it as a path to monetization. And we've sold this generation of Gen Z workers a bill of goods, right? We're not paying them enough to retire. We're not paying them enough to cover basic housing or healthcare. And we're asking them to come to work and give their whole selves, their body, their souls, their minds. And we're not even compensating them enough for that work. So I'm glad that you're working in the trenches of these positions because we need people like you to help employers remember that when they ask for the world, they have to give the world. Exactly. You need to satisfy someone's most basic needs. And that definition changes based on the job. Inevitably, right? That it should. It should change. You should not have the exact same person working in a warehouse that you have working in the you know, front of the store at your retail shop selling clothes, right? Yeah, definitely. Not the warehouse guys I know, at least. Yeah. (laughs) In the world of recruiting at this time, they have a warm body approach, not a custom fit approach. And that's what I'm trying to change. I love it. Well, what's the one work-related problem that you're obsessed with that nobody is currently thinking about? So... I should warn you, this is one of my rant topics, so please stop me when I start, but I, my work-related problem is what I call the fallacies of work. As a community, no matter where you come from, no matter where, what uh, financial or uh, your, you know, historic, whatever background you come from, there are a series of fallacies associated with work across our country and honestly around the world i've heard some of these same fallacies come up and so what i'm talking about is you can't be a job hopper your resume has to be this way you have to have this job then you can get this job or there's a million of them and i think and all of them hurt us as people, as individuals, and they hurt work as a company, as a concept. Like, for example, my least favorite is that one about job hoppers, because technically, one, I am one. And two, that is the one that hurt, that ultimately hurts you as a human the most. If you stay at a job that's not good for you, for whatever reason, emotions, psychology, bad commute, Uh, takes away time with my kids, it is bad for you. Bad physically, bad emotionally. And I'm here to tell you that that damage doesn't stop once you put in your two weeks notice. It it is literally, it is self-abuse to stay at a job that's not good for you. And so that's one of those areas where if I knew how to go out there and change this kind of community idea about jobs, I would do that. That's amazing. You know, I had a guest on not too long ago by the name of Scott Santons, and Scott talks about basic income as a way to address some of this. So we all get a baseline dividend that's paid to us. It's not welfare. And that way we don't have to 
uh, suppress our inner Einstein and work at a job because it pays us well, we can actually pursue the things we're good at. Have you studied basic income at all? A little bit. So I'm actually a, hist- a political science minor. Of course, and of so course I find you are. Things yeah. like that. <laughs> I'm a communications major with a political science minor and somehow ended up as the CEO of a company. Totally, so totally. take those fallacies and shove it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder what surprises you about our current era of work in a positive way. Like what gives you hope? Let's end on a positive note. Yeah. So I think surprise and hope are probably two different areas for me just because I can be a little critical. <laughs> I know that. Um, but that's because of my experience, right? I've, I've gone out and done a lot of this, So I'd say surprise. I'm still surprised at how popular job boards are. Yeah, me too. I just started one on HR books because people are complaining to me about all these HR ladies are like, I hate my job and they're all just job swapping. And I'm like, let, wait, let me curate some decent jobs and show them to you, which is not really a job board. It's more like a uh, a Pinterest board, right? Of the things Lori thinks might be okay for our economy. But you're right. The first inclination for everybody is to go to Indeed and to go to, you know, ZipRecruiter. Yeah. Which, by the way, if they want to exactly. give me money for sponsorship, I'll take it. Absolutely. ZipRecruiter, sponsorship, yeah. do it, guys. But yeah, um, right. no, but remember a few years ago, probably when we met around 2009, between 2009, and 2012, probably. Um, remember the ultimate presentation was job boards are dead. Yeah. Are they dead? No, no, they're not going anywhere either. There are millions of them and there are millions more being created every year and these niche job boards right now. So one, your idea about the HR job board is actually really smart because niche job boards are selling like crazy. Yeah. From your lips to God's ears, you know, like that. We hope that. (laughs) Well, all right. So right. Job, bo- job boards surprise you, but what gives you hope? So I was listening to your other podcasts uh, and they taught Amanda Height was one of your guests and she talked about the kids uh, from Parkland. And so that was my first answer, but I don't want int- to, I don't want to steal her. Hey, um, no, there's no such thing as stealing. There's no new art in this world. And those kids from Parkland are so impressive with the way they can articulate their point of view and the way they can fend off social media trolls. I love it. Exactly. So I think when I was thinking about this, I took a step back and I realized why I admire those kids and why I admire a lot of people actually is because of empathy. And I think that's what gives me hope looking forward is that I'm hearing a lot more people stop to say, well, what if I was in his shoes? How would I want to be treated? And using that golden rule that we all learned when we were kids to apply that to real life now. You know, there, I know there are a million people out there who hate everyone and they want to break people down, but more than ever, and this is both a personal and just an observation element. I notice there are people out there who want nothing more than to do the right thing. And that is filled with hope for me. I love it. I love it. What an optimist. You're like a secret inner optimist. It's beautiful, Katrina. Well, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you on the internet? So it's actually really easy. I think William Tincup and I are the only people who are the only people with their names. So if you just search Katrina Kibben, 
uh, you'll find my Twitter, my blog, the company and all that fun stuff. That's fabulous. Well, Katrina, thanks for being a guest on Let's Fix Work. And everybody, we'll see you again in a second when we wrap things up. Ready to start a company? Do you have your financial house in order? Are you motivated to try? I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Katrina Kibben. You know, she's not superwoman. She's every woman. And if she can do it, start a new business, start a new life, so can you. So connect with Katrina online and connect with me on the web at L. Rudiman or Let's Fix Work. Also, you can head over to LoriRudiman.com and see show notes and summaries of this episode and all the other episodes in our library. Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative. Audra Casino and Megan Doherty fix this podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast player. And I can't promise you a raise or fixing your work, but you'll get my love and appreciation for subscribing. And that's all for now. I'm really glad you listened today. I hope you learned something. And I'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by subscribing to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review.